So I hope you're going to enjoy this evening's talk. Uh, a few years ago, I'm not sure if the fellow's here this evening, I was giving a talk in Melbourne, and after the talk had finished, he came up to see me because he was a comedian on television. And he said, I've been looking at you for the last one hour. Your timing is perfect, and your material is unique, and he offered me a job in the <laughs> Melbourne Comedy Club. <laughs> and that was a wonderful accolade to get an invitation to one of the best comedy uh, schools in the whole of Australia. And I said to him, well, you know, I will consider it, but my day job is taking too much of my time, so I think I'll stick to being a monk from here on in. But it was wonderful that he appreciated the fact that when you give talks on spirituality, it's important also to add the humour into it. Because humour, humanity, they go together. To be a human is to have humour. Uh, to be able to live is to laugh and to love. Three words which come really, really close together. And which is one of the reasons why when there is adversity in your life, if you can see it properly, you can have a laugh at adversity. When I started off my career, it was as a school teacher after I finished university, and I often tell people that was one of the reasons why I decided to become a monk. If you've taught high school in Australia, this was actually in England, taught teenagers for one year, anybody would think of leaving the world. <laughs> But, you know, even though I was uh, teaching uh, school children, you could still learn a lot. And one of the teachings which I learned as a school teacher, a wise piece of advice, was that if you do make a mistake, and if you're sitting up on a stage and giving a presentation, you make a mistake, and everybody starts laughing, make sure that you laugh as well. <laughs> and then, the world never laughs at you, it only laughs with you. Which is such a beautiful saying, because it means in adversity, other people might laugh, but you make sure that you laugh as well. For example, I was in Penang some years ago, having finished a nice meditation retreat, and the group was sending me off at the airport, and before I went inside to um, to go into the, uh, the places where you could wait for the aircraft to be boarded. They brought me this delicious, creamy um, coffee milk concoction. And it was delicious. I'd had it before. They knew I liked it. So they gave it to me and I started sucking it through the straw. But there, was, there was something wrong with the straw. It must have been blocked, so I sucked even harder <laughs> and harder. And all of my so-called disciples and friends. They weren't helping me at all, they were just covering their mouths, <laughs> obviously trying the hardest not to laugh. There was something I was doing was stupid, maybe I wasn't sucking hard enough, so I sucked extra hard, and they couldn't even stop themselves, they started bursting out laughing. I realised it wasn't a straw, it was a spoon. <laughs> now when I was a young man, spoons were metal, and they were, you know, they were wide at the top, this was just you know, one of these modern spoons you find in coffee shops, which looked just like a straw. 
He should have told me. <laughs> so as soon as I started laughing, they started laughing and we had a very good time. This is you know, through adversity. You make a fool of yourself and what a wonderful gift that is. When you make a big mistake, say something wrong, that is a wonderful opportunity to share laughter with others. It means you don't have to be perfect, you can make mistakes and when you make mistakes, it's not adversity, it's a wonderful opportunity to make people happy. And in fact, I was so stupid as a young monk that I made my teacher so happy on many occasions. I know there's at least one or two Thai people here tonight and you'll appreciate this story. Our monastery in the first few years was so poor that we had to, um, it was so difficult to get even ordinary things like toothpaste and sometimes you didn't have a toothbrush, you had to use your fingers to rub the toothpaste in. And at this particular occasion I'd run out of soap. So I had to go to Ajahn Chah, the master, to ask for some soap in Thai language. Now the word for soap in Thai is sabu. I said sapo. It's close enough, but sapo means pineapple. <laughs> so my teacher, what he heard was me asking for a pineapple. And so he asked me, he said, what do you want a pineapple for? And I said, to wash my body with. <laughs> And he laughed, he, he told all the lay people and visitors that for the next week. You know, in England, people don't use soap. They use pineapples and wash with. <laughs> so, I really enjoyed that. I made my master happy so many times <laughs> by being stupid. So, in adversity, if you make a mistake, please tell everybody about it. Make them happy. Because some of the things which people do, oh, they're just so crazy and stupid. I, when I do read the newspapers, I like to get these funny stories, just how stupid people can be. Now there's this thief in Perth, you may have seen it on the internet, and he wanted late at night to rob a jewellery shop. So there was no one around, and he picked up a brick and he threw it at the window to break the glass window. Now, you should know by now that these days jewellery shops have really strong reinforced glass. You can't break it with a, with a brick. You can't even dent it or crack it with a brick. In fact, you throw it at the brick, and it was caught on the CCTV camera. He threw it at the window, and the brick bounced back, hit him on the head. <laughs> and that's where the police found him, unconscious. <laughs> Oh, some days you don't have any good luck. And in New York, <laughs> there was this young man trying to rob a convenience store, like a 7-Eleven. But you know, they were serious over there. He got his gun out and pointed it to this cashier. Now hand over all the contents of the, the cash box. She had no choice. She emptied it all out and gave it to this young man. And the young man saw a bottle of whiskey on the shelf. So he said, I'll have that too. And the cashier said, I'm sorry, I can't give that to you. You're not old enough. <laughs> said, yes, I am. And she said, no, you're not. He said, yes, I am. So he said, she said, well, show me your ID. <laughs> <laughs> and this thief was so stupid, here's my ID. 
And she looked at it. I'm terribly sorry, sir. I made a mistake. You are old enough. Have they whiskey? <laughs> and of course, now she had all these details. She rang the police and he was arrested in the next five minutes. <laughs> Some people do such stupid things, just like we do. And because we do stupid things, it's not adversity at all. It's we're smiling. We're realising that this is the nature of life. The reason why we laugh is because you've done the same, we're very similar. And so have I. So just don't be embarrassed about life. Because when we get embarrassed about life, that gets adversity, we get depressed, and we miss this wonderful opportunity for laughter. As I said in the talk in the University of Melbourne a couple of nights ago, laughter is so important now, in the spiritual life. For those of you, you know, who know Buddhism, there are three major types of Buddhism. Hinayana, Mahayana and Vajrayana. And sometimes people will say, you know, what type are you? And I say, I try and combine everything. So Tibetan Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism, Korean Buddhism, Zen Buddhism, Southeast Asian Buddhism, try and bring it all together. And so my type of Buddhism combines the Hinayana, Mahayana and Vajrayana. It takes a H from Hinayana, the Aha, the next three letters from Mahayana, and the Yana from Vajrayana. And that spells my tradition, Hahayana. <laughs> and isn't it so refreshing actually come to a religious talk and have it meaningful but also fun as well. Because when it's fun as well, number one, it's good for your health. For example, uh, I was going to Singapore for a series of talks a few years ago and they decided to hire the convention centre in Suntec City, a huge big uh, triple tower complex paid a lot of money for four nights of talks. A six of, and the people there were about three or four thousand people could actually um, go to this. And to get people to go there, they put advertisements for me on the bus. <laughs> on the back of a bus. <laughs> it was true, I had a face like the back of a bus. They <laughs> say in Australia. But there was a big problem. For those of you who can remember, as I flew from Australia to Singapore, I saw on the newspapers, on the flight, they give you newspapers on the flight, SARS, the sudden, was it, sudden acute respiratory syndrome. And on the newspaper, the Singapore newspaper, in big black letters, on the front page, 99 people had been affected by SARS. And the government had closed down all the schools. And the government had said to everybody, please, no public meetings. And there I arrived and my organisers were so worried. They'd spent all this money hiring the convention centre. They'd spent all the money putting my face on the back of a bus. <laughs> 
and it happened right in the middle of the SARS crisis in Singapore. And they asked me, what should we do? What should we do? Should we cancel? And my response was this. At that time I said, what is the population of Singapore? And they didn't know where I was going with this, but they said about four million. And I said, well, like I just read this morning, 99 people have got SARS, which means that 3,999,901 people haven't got SARS. So the odds are in our favour. <laughs> 30,000 to one. Let's go for it. If you had a horse and you were backing it, 30,000, uh, no, one to 30,000 or something is going to win. That's a pretty sure bet to me. So I said, let's go ahead. I said, but what about SARS? Are we being irresponsible? I said, no, and I'll show you why. Because SARS is a respiratory disease of the lungs, especially affects people who've got a weak respiratory system. Now their lungs aren't strong enough and I say what's the best way to overcome that disease and prevent it is to exercise people's lungs. I'm going to say a lot of jokes in these talks. I'm going to get people to laugh so much. Their lungs are going to get so well exercised in the next couple of hours that your lungs are going to be so strong. SARS hasn't got a chance with you. <laughs> so that was my therapy, making people laugh a lot. And it was not just you know, for exercising the lungs. It is just the attitude of mind people have, which can actually make people sick or make people healthy. You know, one of my weird experiences I was, you know, after I was uh, graduated from Cambridge, I went up to Durham University for one year. It was to actually to do a, a course to become a teacher, but actually that was only the excuse. It was because my, my girlfriend was up there, that's why I went up there, <laughs> honestly. And, <laughs> but you know, it, you know, she dumped me while I was there. <laughs> she found another boy. She let me go. Was I sad? No, I'm so thankful for her. That wasn't adversity. I think, oh my goodness, thanks so much. Now I'm free. I can become a monk. <laughs> if she hadn't dumped me, I'd have probably been married by now, divorced, kids, broke. <laughs> so if ever I meet her, I'm going to say, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> but anyhow, so uh, while I was up there, in, uh, over there, yeah, you know, you had some adversities up there, but you always learn how to laugh, whatever you had to do in life. And I'm just trying to think what the story was I'm going to say over here. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> about even though it goes wrong, you laugh a lot, and you find that uh, happiness actually conquers diseases. One day, Durham is right in the north of England, it's really, really cold and wet, especially you know, December, January, February. And so I got, again, a really bad cold. So bad, I was in bed, couldn't go to any lectures that day. My nose was streaming, just felt really, really terrible. And then I heard somebody knocking on the door of the student house where I was. Go away. But they kept on knocking, so I crawled out of bed staggered to the door, opened it, what do you want? He said, we've got a parcel for you. 
Really? What is it? And these are the days, what was it, 1973, it was like my music system, the stereo system, the hi-fi system. You know, in those days to play music you had to have a huge box full of equipment. Not just like a little smartphone or the old iPods. And it was my stereo system that arrived from London, I was so excited. I managed to drag it up to my room to connect it all together, so many cables, so many wires, and put on my first record, Jimi Hendrix. And then I noticed something strange. Before that first track had finished, my cold had completely disappeared. Honestly, it was weird. I had a really bad cold, and then excitement, happiness, you know, for me, getting my favourite music, and I can now listen to it, was enough to overcome that cold. That shocked me, but I learned so much from that. Adversity, if you're negative to adversity, to say, why me? Someone told me there's a 98-year-old woman who went to a hospital in New York for a checkup. She'd been healthy all her life, nothing ever wrong with her, and the doctor said you had cancer. First disease she ever had. You know what she said? Why me? <laughs> what do you mean, why me? You've got away with it for 98 years? <laughs> it's about time, I say. <laughs> you get something. <laughs> it's fair. So, but anyway, that when you laugh at things like diseases, you smile, you actually just have a happy mind towards them, of course the diseases get less. Now old Patch Adams, now making people laugh. That's when I go to see people in hospital, I try to tell them jokes. But I do remember going to one of my disciples once in Perth, you know, she had a hysterectomy. Now hysterectomy is not a really a major operation like physically, but that's very traumatic for a woman. You know, your ability to bear children is now gone, it's taken away from you. Psychologically, it's a very powerful um, procedure. So she wanted some counselling, really badly. She felt really, really uncertain of what she'd done. And so when I came into the room, the first thing she said was, Ajahn Brahm, please, please don't tell me any jokes. I've got this big scar, this wound across my chest. Even breathing is painful laughing will be excruciating, but that didn't stop me. <laughs> my God, it's my nature to tell jokes. So this poor woman, <laughs> I tried my best but I couldn't resist. I said, you shouldn't have invited me in the first place. Or this other woman I went to see, she was a Tibetan nun, Australian, and living in Perth, but she got very bad cancer, and you know, she was dying, dying in hospital. Now in a hospice, sorry, you know these hospices, places where you can, they just look after you to make sure that your last few weeks or days of life are really comfortable. They're not trying to get you better, they're just trying to make your death comfortable. So she'd been in there a while and she called me one day and said, I think I'm going to go soon, maybe in the next 24 hours. And I respect that, I've seen that so often, that people say they're going to go, and even the doctor says, no, no, there's no reason to, you can probably live another week or two weeks. But they know when they're going to go. And so I took that very seriously. And actually, it was absolutely true, she died in the next 24 hours. So I rushed to go to that hospital to see her. 
And as soon as I got to the hospice, I was met by the matron, the head nurse, the, and she followed the school of management called the Kim Jong-un School of Management. <laughs> no questions. She ran that place and that was it. And so I said, oh, I've come to see this, this woman, I gave the name. And she looked at me, I'm sorry, you can't come. I said, why not? Because she has given specific, strict instructions, no visitors, go away. So, but she just rang me an hour ago and I've travelled such a long way to see me. I don't care about that, said this nurse. We have to respect our, our patient's wishes. <laughs> I said, that can't be true. And she was really mad at me, she glared. But be careful, you cannot out-glare a monk. <laughs> I glared back, <laughs> And so she said, come with me. And I followed her. And we got to the patient's room. Her name was on top of the room. And there was a, a note, a piece of paper, which the patient had written herself. Absolutely no visitors, said the piece of paper. And the nurse triumphantly looked at me and said, See? <laughs> and so I looked. And you know what? At the bottom of that piece of paper, it had the words, Except for Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> <laughs> And I just couldn't resist. <laughs> See? <laughs> and this nurse went off in a huff. <laughs> She'd been outwitted by the monk. But anyway, when I went in the room, the first thing I said, you know, this poor uh, Australian girl, Tibetan nun, she was so thin, emaciated, like you are after many, many weeks of cancer just skin and bone. And then I asked her, I said, why did you put that notice on there? Why did you say, except Ajahn Brahm? And she said something very wonderful to me. She said, because you're the only one who comes in here to see me, who talks to me. Everyone else talks to my sickness. And they forget there's somebody else in here other than my cancer, it's me. And she asked me, any new jokes? <laughs> Because she was teaching me, yes, she had a sickness, yes, she was dying, but there was more to her than that. She was a human being who wanted to be treated like a human being, not as a sick, dying person. She wanted me to talk to her as if we were having a coffee in a coffee shop, just you know, spending a nice you know, hours or two hours in the afternoon enjoying each other's company. She wanted to have a conversation. Everybody else went into that room and said, oh, you look terrible, oh, you're dying, that's so sad. Oh. Imagine what that makes me feel like, she says. I know that. That's what the doctors keep. And when you go to a hospital, how many of you say the most stupid sentence in the whole world when you see someone in the hospital, how are you feeling today? <laughs> Come on, that's dumb. If they were feeling okay, they wouldn't be in that bed, would they? They're sick, they're ill. <laughs> so don't say that, just tell them a joke. 
treat them like a human being, not the sickness. The sickness is treated by the doctors and nurses. That's not your job. You're supposed to speak to the other part of them. So that's what I was doing. I spent a nice sort of couple of hours just talking about, you know, some Buddhism stories, anecdotes, just like I talked to you. I talked to her as a person, not as a sickness. And that's such an important thing to do. And that's why she wanted me in there you know, to spend some of the last hours of her life with. And I always remember that. She taught me how to look after sick people. And a similar story was good old Ted. Ted was an old English man from Yorkshire, well sorry, Lancashire. If he was a ghost now he'd hit me over the head. <laughs> he was a, go uh, <laughs> a man from Lancashire. And he was um, uh, really sick. He'd been smoking all his life, one of his old people had lung cancer and once you have lung cancer you have all sorts of other cancers as well. So, you know, no problem, no chance of any survival. They took him to the hospital. And they took him to the hospice, sorry, to die. And he told me the first night he was in the hospice, they asked him, what do you want for dinner? You know, you actually get pampered in the hospice. What do you want for dinner? And he says, well, look, I've also got diabetes, so I can't have anything sweet or sugary. I've got hardened arteries, so I can't have any salt. You know, I can't have anything which was too oily or too rich. I got irritable bowels here, I got this and I got that. And the nurse looked at him, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> the diabetes is not going to kill you. The cholesterol is not going to do you any harm. You're not going to die of a heart attack. Cancer's going to kill you a long time before that. <laughs> you can eat whatever you want. Really? Yeah, what do you want? Anything. So for the first time in about three or four years, he could eat all his favourite foods. The foods his wife would never ever let him get near. He put as much salt on his meat or whatever he wanted, the sweet, the extra sugar in his tea, because it didn't matter anymore, the cancer was going to kill him. And so when I visited him he said, this is a wonderful place. I can eat whatever I like. <laughs> and he was having such a good time there, absolutely true story, after six days he walked out, he got better. <laughs> he had an extra six months of life, because he could eat whatever he wanted, and then when he went back to the hospice he died properly the next time. <laughs> but, because, <laughs> but because he was having some happiness and joy, that gave him you know, remission, an extra six months of life. And that is really so important. So if your, your wife, she says, oh you can't eat this diet, you can't eat it. Tell her, you're kidding me, you're kidding me, remember that story of <laughs> But it's not just the sickness, it's the mind and the happiness which is really, really important. So if you do smile through adversity, like through a sickness like cancer, your chances are you're going to extend your life quite considerably. If you are laughing, especially a business meeting, never get serious during a business meeting, just laugh. When they start sort of, you know, talking about the contract, just laugh. <laughs> and the, the people you're doing business with think, what the hell is she doing? What, do, what does she know that I don't know? It gives you an advantage. It, it means that you know that you have you know, a superior position when it comes to the negotiations because they think that you know something they don't know. 
Laughter. You get stopped by the police and they give you a speeding ticket. Start laughing. You should see that coppers, that policeman's face, if you start laughing when you give you a ticket. Then what's he mean? What's he doing? What's he up to? <laughs> you know, as a Buddhist monk, you know, sometimes people try and upset me. You know, they look at me and they think, you're weird. You know, that you're wearing strange clothes. Why do you wear the clothes like everybody else? But you know, these clothes are very practical. People sometimes ask me, why does Buddhist monk wear these robes like this? They're so practical. They're my bed sheet at night. <laughs> They're colour brown, you can spill tea, coffee, and you don't have to wash it. You can go for many days without washing these. <laughs> but more importantly, I was travelling over to Europe, and I think it was just a week or two after one of those planes got shot down over Ukraine. And they said, Ajahn Brahm, we don't want you to travel, you're too valuable, because if, you know, some missile from the Ukrainian crisis hits your aircraft, you know, we don't want to lose you. So don't worry, I've figured it all out. Because if I get hit by a missile at 30,000 feet, this is my parachute. <laughs> it's so big, I just hold the four corners and I just float slowly down. And then they said, but, 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 you know, Ukraine, a little bit further on, is like Syria and Iraq, Afghanistan, and that's a very dangerous place if you land there. You, number one, you're an infidel, you're a Buddhist monk, I can't explain that away, and you're a white man too. That's no, straight away ransom or <coughs> cut your head off. So don't worry, I've got all that figured out as well. If I land in, say, Syria, all I would need to do, I'll, I'll just cut a little slit in my robe and a <laughs> and it'll be my burqa. <laughs> That's how you laugh through adversity. <laughs> so you have all these great ideas of what to do when things go wrong. So, the laughter gives you, extends your life, and the laughter gets you out of big trouble sometimes, but most importantly, what's one of the biggest problems of our modern world? Depression. Why do we get depressed? Because we just don't laugh enough. And if you do some more laughter, you, know, you find it actually brings up energy inside of you. You feel more positive towards life. You don't get so negative towards yourself because you laugh at yourself and you laugh at life. What causes you depression? You know, break up of relationships, that's usually number one. And if you break up a relationship, just look at on another side. You know, instead of like looking at the negative side of it, you know, you can look upon it that you've escaped. <laughs> I told people the other day, that, I think today, this morning, the relationships Relationships are like a pack of playing cards. You start off with two hearts and then you get a diamond. <laughs> Later on, clubs. <laughs> they finish off with a spade when you bury it in the backyard. 
<laughs> like a pack of playing cards. All about a very, very, very romantic man. Valentine's Day. At Valentine's Day, he asked his wife, said, well, it was tomorrow, the next day, what do you want for Valentine's Day, darling? And she said, nothing, I've got you. Now he'd been married long enough to know that's not what she meant. <laughs> now what gift do you want? And she looked at him and been married long enough and she said, anything, anything with diamonds in. <laughs> and so the following day, she got a little package and when she opened it, it was a pack of playing cards. <laughs> Thirteen diamonds in it. <laughs> that was the end of their marriage. <laughs> but I've, I've known a lot of people, I, obviously sometimes you talk to young people, you know, looking for partners in life, and you, you tell them, if you want to be attractive, Forget about makeup, forget about going to a salon, forget about expensive clothes, laugh. Be happy, smiley. You know that's the biggest turn on for the opposite sex. Being a fun person, laughing. So if you really want to find somebody, learn how to laugh. But also, tell now, with the difficulties of life, adversities of life, finding a partner is so difficult and when you find them, too often you get the wrong ones. <laughs> so follow my advice. I have been a monk for 42 years, celibate, I know all about relationships. <laughs> <laughs> so I say, if you're a young man looking for someone to share your life with, follow this advice. Never, ever marry a beautiful girl. <laughs> the hot chicks, leave them alone. <laughs> the reason is this. It's obvious, I don't know why you don't understand this, guys. If you marry a beautiful woman, you may be on business in Singapore or China somewhere, and you don't know what she's doing in Melbourne while you're away. <laughs> She's so beautiful that many, many guys lust for her. So you'd always be anxious every hour you're away. But if you marry an ugly girl, <laughs> you can go over to Hawaii playing golf, you can go to Thailand, you know, going to some resort, and you don't have any worries at all, no man will touch your wife, so you can go away without any anxiety or fear at all. You are a happy man marrying an ugly wife. <laughs> and you know your relationship is secure because no one else wants us. The next number two. <laughs> and for girls, what about you? Never ever marry a rich man. If you marry a rich man, he can afford one or two on the side, <laughs> mistresses. <laughs> he may go over to some Hong Kong business, you don't know what he's doing there because you know, he can afford somebody. But if you marry a poor man, 
You can go out with your girlfriends, go to a retreat in Perth, you can go wherever you like, knowing that you can't afford a mistress. <laughs> so you can sleep peacefully at night, no worries at all, know that he has to be sort of faithful because he can't afford anything else. <laughs> now you have a safe and, and secure marriage. If you follow my instructions, or you, you, you uh, men, you marry ugly girls, or you girls marry poor men, and you'll be happy ever after. <laughs> and so, on that, you girls, if you want to find a guy, don't go to the beauty parlour, go to ugly parlour. <laughs> you men, if you want to find a girl, then give all your money to the Newbury Buddhist Monastery Donation Fund. <laughs> <laughs> and that will make you more attractive, because now you're poor and then you're much more trustworthy. <laughs> so what you're really saying there, it doesn't really matter being rich, being poor or something, but one of the reasons why people feel they have adversity, they feel that life is unfair to them. They're poor, they're not so attractive, they're not so skillful in life. We've been dealt a bad pack of, hand, pack of cards in our life. We have to deal with them. And sometimes people have the adversity of a physical deformity or illness. They maybe have some mental disabilities, schizophrenia, clinical depression, and all this other stuff which people find to be some of the biggest adversities in their life. You may lose your job, you can get another one. You know, you may you know, lose a partner, you can find another one with a bit of, uh, a bit of uh, wisdom from the monk. <laughs> <laughs> but when you have like a mental disease like chronic depression or uh, chronic pain, sometimes that's a bit hard to bear and people feel just they're left out of the world. And I once went to give this talk well, at uh, a mental health conference in Perth. And this was the clients, not the psychologists, the psychiatrists and doctors, but actually the people who received help from these. And they said, when I came to give a talk, this woman came up to me afterwards, please excuse me, but this is what she said, when I saw you come in your robes, I thought, what wanker is this? <laughs> That's what she said. But I apologise for thinking that, because what you said has changed my life. And so what I did say was a powerful story. Uh, I did say this at the BS3 this afternoon. It's a simile of a, of a forest. And I tell this to many people and it really changes people's lives. Next time you feel depressed or you're left out of the world or you're not good enough, which is a disease of our modern world, feeling we're not good enough, please go for a walk in a forest somewhere, a natural forest. Not the botanical gardens, that's not natural. <laughs> Go for a real forest and find the perfect tree. By which I mean a tree which is dead straight, not leaning to the left or the right, not you know, curled and crooked, dead straight tree. And a tree with all the branches equally spaced with no branches ripped off by the storms, with only green healthy leaves on the twigs, no yellow leaves, brown leaves, and no leaves which have been eaten by the bugs. And with a bark nice and smooth, with no damage from the bushfires or through collisions, 
a perfect tree. If you can find a perfect tree in the forests of Victoria, you will be the very first. Such trees do not exist. They've all been damaged by the storms or bushfires or by something or other. No tree is dead straight. No tree has all the branches in place. No tree has just got healthy green leaves. No tree is smooth. They've all got damage on the bark. And in fact, that's what makes them natural. The ones you see in the botanical gardens, they're not really natural. They're manicured, like TV stars. Amazing this, but there's many celebrities are actually Buddhists and some of those are supermodels. One of my friends went to a retreat and heard that Kate Moss, the supermodel, was on the retreat. And being a guy, he was quite excited and went looking, he wasn't watching his breath and watching, doing any meditation. <laughs> Which one is Kate? Which is Kate Moss? <laughs> and you know, he couldn't find out which of those girls it was. She was there but he couldn't recognize her because the Kate Moss in real life is an ordinary looking girl, indistinguishable from anybody else. But she's got a face which is like a blank canvas on which the makeup artists, the lighters, they can paint this image of a male fantasy. That's what makes her a supermodel that the, you can make almost anything out of that with the, the, uh, the makeup and the lighting and the airbrushing. But in real life, she's just ordinary. Real life people, you don't recognize them at all. Just like one of my disciples, she went to see the, His Holiness the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala. It's actually amazingly easy to see. You have to wait for a few days, put your name on the list, you get an appointment, it's very open. So while she was waiting for a few days for her appointment to see His Holiness the Dalai Lama, there was meditation every morning, you know, in the, the meditation hall. So she would go there every morning and one morning she went there early in the morning, sitting down to do her breath meditation, watching the breath go in, watching the breath go out. And somebody sat next to her and just naturally she had a look and that was the end of her meditation. Richard Gere, no, no, watch your breath. Richard Gere is sitting next to me. <laughs> no, no, watch your breath. <laughs> so she didn't do breath meditation for one whole hour she did Richard Gere meditation. <laughs> <laughs> That's just what it's like sometimes. But anyway, so the real life, you know, actually is, is quite ordinary. It's not what we fantasize about. Real trees are bent and crooked, just like you are. And so if you are not good enough, not perfect, you're not straight, you've got a few things which have been ripped off by the storms of life, you've got damage to your emotional world by all the difficulties and traumas you have been through. If you are damaged goods, welcome to the beautiful forests, natural forests called humanity. You belong. And in fact, 
when I walk in forests, the most beautiful trees, the one I like to stare at if I was an artist which I would paint, are the ones which are the most crooked and bent. The ones where the limbs have been torn off by the storms are the ones which supply nests for the birds and other marsupials who live in the Australian forest. That's their homes. And the marks on their trees, on the barks, the trunks, just make those trees just so interesting. The more damaged, the more beautiful you are. Now you understand there's nothing wrong with you. Don't compare yourself to Kate Moss. <laughs> compare yourself to the beautiful tree in the forest. The more bent, the more crooked, the more beautiful you are. Welcome. Changes people's idea of what they're supposed to be and what they're supposed to live up to. And that is a great freedom. I've only got another few minutes, so I'm now going to go into an amazing story. And this is actually how to deal with huge adversities. Each one, oh no, two stories. The first story, what actually is adversity? This is a little story called, what is a problem? Because I read this story in a book many, many years ago from a person who was backpacking through Europe. Well, this was about 30 years ago. Backpacking through Europe, he was a United States citizen. You know, he would get to some city, get any old job, cleaning, washing dishes in restaurants, uh, no, menial jobs, you know, staying in you know, poor areas, being a young person, he could sleep almost anywhere, saving up enough money and then going to the next destination in Europe. Now backpacking, exploring the, the planet and making new friends and having adventures, that's what it was like. So he happened to be in Vienna, the capital of Austria, a beautiful city full of so much culture, so much history. And so he got a job, one of the best jobs for backpackers was in a restaurant washing dishes. It was a great job, even though the pay wasn't so good, he got free food. So he was enjoying his free food and just uh, <laughs> washing the dishes and doing maybe a bit of waiting, getting a bit of money, saving it up so he can go to his next destination. But then there was a problem in the restaurant, a difficulty. The owner of the restaurant, by mistake, had ordered far too much sauerkraut. Now sauerkraut is a pickled cabbage you know, which Germans love. It's like the kimchi of Germany. <laughs> like the, the blue cheese which they have in England, which other people, they look and throw it out, it's gone off. <laughs> you know, the pickled, uh, the, the, and there's a couple of Norwegians here, the, the pickled fish, you know, of Norway. Well, I forget what it's called, but it stinks. <laughs> but, you know, Norwegians love it. So, too much sauerkraut. So the owner of the restaurant got all the workers together one morning and said, look, big mistake, we've got too much sauerkraut, so for the next two weeks, if you want to eat for free, it has to be sauerkraut. <laughs> Anything else you have to pay for. Sauerkraut for breakfast, sauerkraut for lunch, sauerkraut for dinner, I've got to get rid of this stuff. 
And so the American, being American, said, you can't do this to us, this is not right. It's understood, if you work in a restaurant, you get free food, not sauerkraut. You know, I'm not German, I'm a, from the United States, you can't do this to us, we're not standing for this, this is wrong, this is just exploitation, this is bad. He got very upset. And the cook, this old guy, called him aside and said, look, I want to teach you something, young man. I want to teach you the difference between an irritation and a problem. He said, young man, about 15 years ago, I was in Auschwitz. Every morning when I woke up, many of my relations and friends were taken away to be executed, gassed. Every day when I woke up, I never knew whether today they'd call me. He said, living in Auschwitz, that is called a problem. Eating sauerkraut is only an irritation. <laughs> Keep it in perspective. And I learned a lot of that. So many of the adversities of my life, they're only irritations. They're not real problems. Yeah, they cause you a headache, but they're not a big thing when you're looking in the big picture. So if you know the difference between an irritation and a problem, you will have a much more peaceful, happy life. Irritations, just leave them alone, they go by themselves. It's a real problem. You know, you're dying of cancer, okay, that's a problem. You know, if you just got sort of a cough or something, or your, your wife is arguing at you, that's just an irritation, that's just what they do. <laughs> your kid is playing too much games on the computer. That's not a problem, that's just an irritation, they get over it. And anyway, this friend of mine over in, in Perth, he was always spending too much time as a kid playing on the computers, playing games, never ever doing his homework. And his mum and dad would always tell him off. You know, do your homework, then now I'm doing my games. And even though before, you know, before he left school, you know, his grades were terrible, but he decided it was so good, he invented his own computer games. He made a few million. He gave you know, a couple of million to his parents, and now his parents let him play computer games as long as he wants. <laughs> <laughs> so if you stop your kid playing computer games, you may be depriving you of a great retirement fund. <laughs> I get into big trouble for saying that. <laughs> but it's an only an irritation, it's not a real problem. So keep it in perspective and don't actually overreact, which so many people do in life. And they make a huge problem over what is really only an irritation. And that causes you so much uh, unhappiness, you can't smile at all in life. But the real story, which is a powerful one, because in my job as a monk, it's a really interesting career. Yeah, you know, you write books, you know, which become bestsellers. There's a lot of Indonesians here, they you know, the ones who are doing a lot of the, um, the uh, uh, volunteer work. But I was in Indonesia recently, and I was told, you know, when I was giving a tour there, by the biggest um, uh, book-setting chain in Indonesia, Gramedia, 
that every one of the books, of my books, which are translated into Bahasa Indonesia, they always, every one of them gets the number three on the bestseller list. Every one of them gets the number three. And I asked them, well they said, pretty good, but I said, why don't they get to number two or number one? And they said, because the number two slot is occupied by the Bible, and the number one slot is occupied by the Quran. And if you beat any one of those, you're in big trouble, Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm very happy with the number three spot. I don't want to go any further than that. <laughs> but, but anyway, so you write books, you inspire people, but you want to take it better than that. You know, sometimes you get a bit tired of just giving talks. I want to actually push this much further. And so I was very happy to receive an invitation to teach at a group called the Australian so Society for Survivors of Torture and Trauma. Now this is really at the cutting edge, the hard part of counselling. Because these are people, these are refugees, who come into Australia, they make their way, they survived. And they've been through you know, real hell. You know, you think that you've got a problem. You listen to some of these stories. Dungeons, beaten, multiply raped, weeks, months at a time. How they survive this, it just shows us how tough people can be. The will to live can be so strong. And when you hear their stories, your skin creeps, honestly. You don't want to tell anybody the sort of incredibly sadistic, cruel things one human being can do to another. It's disgusting. They managed to get into Australia. Their body is free. But their emotions, their mind, is caught forever in those nameless dungeons. Reliving the beatings and the rapes, the degradation. And this society is supposed to offer them a way out. Body is free. That's not good enough. How can your mind be free as well? And the reason they wanted me to go there is because it was one of my stories, it was one of the most powerful, which had helped, hugely, which had taken people out from those emotional dungeons, freed them from being tortured by their memories. And it was a story which you may know, but it's taking it a little bit further. I don't mind retelling these stories because you can actually explore them, apply them further and take them deeper. It was the story of opening the door of your heart. Story my father told me. Son, whatever you go in your life, whatever you do, the door of my house always open to you. He meant his heart. And I described a therapy. Hard to do. But some of these people are just so strong, they're survivors they have the courage and guts to do it. And they do it. And it's, it moves me how it helps. I tell them to imagine when they feel strong enough, safe enough, imagine in their, their heart, not like a real heart, not like a doctor knows a heart, but a Valentine's Day heart, you know, pointed at the top, you know, with a bit of a sort of a crevice in the, no, point at the bottom, crevice at the top, like the heart symbol in a Valentine's Day card. Imagine a heart in your chest. 
and then imagine two doors on that part. You have to visualize this. Imagine those two doors opening and this part of you, that part of you, you can accept and be with and feel comfortable with. That's standing at the top. And you can see a ladder going down to the ground. And on the ground, you see those little girls, you, the ones which were raped, outside of your heart, of your life. You've been trying to get rid of them, trying to forget them, trying to find a way so they never come into your memory ever again. They are outside, cold, emaciated, afraid. The little man who was brutally beaten again and again and again in those dungeons, outside, scared as hell, and you're up the top there. And you say to those parts of you, you're separated from, come up, come in. You imagine these parts of you, parts of your history, walking up that ladder, that staircase, so afraid, needing all the encouragement to come in, until they reach the top of that ladder, that staircase, the part of you which you can be comfortable with, embraces the part which you're terrified of, you've rejected. Come in, the door of my heart is open to you too. I'm never again trying to reject you, going to reject you. I'm never again going to stigmatize you. I'm never again going to kick you out and try and forget you. You are part of me. You are who I am. Come in. And each one of these comes into your heart. When the last of them is inside, only then are you free. Free from the traumatic memories. They're no longer traumatic. They're you, who you are. You're a damaged tree. You're beautiful. You've got scars. You're part of the world, part of life. And when you see women, men who've done this, they are incredibly impressive human beings. They're free, not because they've got rid of the past. They're free because they've embraced the past. You are free, not because you don't have adversity. You're free because you embrace adversity. It's part of life. You welcome it. And you understand what a beautiful tree truly is. Thank you. Okay, so now we've got some Q&A. Hey, how come I'm laughing in a nervous situation when they have been the unexpected death of a young family member? There doesn't seem to be a reason to laugh. You can try to take a glass full approach 
and be grateful for life, of the person, of the person, but it does not necessarily mean you feel like life. Okay, when a young family member, a young loved one dies, I remember a story I heard from a very old monk who lived in a forest in the north of Thailand a long time ago. Simple hut made of bamboo and thatch in the forest. And just like you had a few days ago in Melbourne, a heavy storm came through that forest. In that storm, many branches came off the trees. Many trees were uprooted as well and came crashing down onto the floor. And he was so scared because he knew if a heavy branch hit the roof, it was only bamboo and thatch, grass, it would come straight through. And if it didn't kill him, it would injure him. And being in the jungle, those days, no smartphones, even these days, you wouldn't have a mobile phone tower, no reception, no one to call no triple zero to get an ambulance. If you're injured, you're dead. So he was up all night, hearing trees and branches come crashing down, always missing his hut. And the, when the storm finished, and when he got up in the morning to the outside of his hut, he looked around to see many trees and branches that just missed his hut. Just! Very lucky to be alive. But what took his attention more than the, the wood which lay scattered on the ground were the leaves, the leaves which had been torn off the tree by the storm. Most of the leaves lying dead on the forest floor were the old brown leaves. Amongst the brown leaves were several yellow leaves. Amongst the yellow leaves, there were a few green leaves. And amongst those green leaves, there were a few leaves which were so bright green, he knew they could have only been shoots the day before. They too had been torn off the tree of life and lay dead on the ground. And he looked up to see what leaves were left. Most leaves left on the trees were green leaves. But even though young green leaves lay dead on the ground, still there were a few curly old brown leaves still clinging on to life. And that's where he got his answer from, why young people die. When the old curly leaves, and there's quite a few of the old brown curly leaves in his audience today. <laughs> why do young people die and the old people still cling on? The same answer as why when a storm goes through the forest it takes most of the old brown leaves but it also takes a few yellow, green and fresh green leaves as well. It's the nature of the storm we call death and it goes through our community. For him, he found the answer to why, why young people die. And as for learning how to laugh, I've told many people, people who are supposed to be my disciples, my friends, people I've got to love and care for, people I, I look upon as being family. When I die, I want everybody to come up and tell their favourite bad joke they heard from me. 
when I die, I want people to remember my life with laughter. Will you do that for me? When each one of you die, how would you want people to remember you? Would you want your funeral service to have everybody crying and weeping and wailing and feeling sad? I don't want my life to cause people sadness. I want people to remember me with happiness, with joy. So at my death, laugh. And I think many of you would rather have your death celebrated with laughter and joy than with tears. We never cry for the person who passed away. We only cry for ourselves. Laughter is an alternative. And I have done that. I have told jokes at funerals. I remember the first time I told a joke at a funeral. The funeral directors, you know these guys in black? You know, they look like you know, the next best thing from vampires. Never, you know, look ashen-faced. They were standing in the back, you know, I was in the front doing the service. All of the mourners were in the, the, uh, the chairs. Funeral directors in the back, when they realised I was telling a joke, they are going, no, no. <laughs> they're trying to stop me, they can't stop me. <laughs> I told the joke and it totally transformed the funeral service. All of the mourners, they were laughing and giggling and they came up to me after and said, thank you so much Ajahn Brahm. We really didn't look forward to this, we were really terrified of this service and now you made it joyful just like our grandfather would have wanted. Thank you so much. We change the idea of death. When people say celebrating a life, I really mean that. Why do we judge a life by the way it ended? Why can't we actually see the whole thing? And even a short life, some of these kids who've had short lives and funerals I've taken, they've been such beautiful kids. You know, you value the incredible, like meteors through the sky, blazing, but only for a few seconds, for kids, a few years. Thank you so much for illuminating my life. I remember you with joy. Even at death we can laugh. And a person who laughs in the face of death is one who's conquered death. Don't be a victim, conquer it. Challenge for you. I've known many people have done that and it's so therapeutic. Yeah. Hi. That's such a deep question. <laughs> Silence. Okay, one of the things to do is, uh, is this going? 
Oh, one of the things you can do, sorry, is actually all these talks, you know, it's very hard for a person to come into a hall like this. You know, to find time on a Monday evening when you should be relaxing and resting. You've been busy at work, you've got to go to work tomorrow. Going to a temple is even worse because all the rites and rituals, you don't know what you're supposed to do and especially Australian people, they are very respectful, they don't want to upset anybody, they don't do anything wrong which means they don't go in in the first place. So seeing that as a problem, accessibility, YouTube. All every talk is on YouTube, so much talks on YouTube. There's people here, even this morning they said, you know, this is the first time we've seen you face to face, but we know you, we've been looking at you on YouTube for the last three, four years. And the people actually tell me, they listen to me on YouTube before they go to sleep at night. There's something about my talks which makes people go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> but no, put it on YouTube, listen to it, and when you start laughing especially, that will get your, your daughter really interested. What are you laughing at, mummy? Because laughter is very, very attractive. And you're laughing, so oh, this you know, crazy monk. And then she start looking, and then there's a good chance you get hooked. So that's the best way. But don't drag her to the temple. That's the last thing to do. I'm sorry, BS3, but later on she comes to the temple myself, but don't drag her. <laughs> Okay, you're awkward, you can't make other people laugh, you don't have to make other people laugh. You know, actually, I'm an introvert. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> I look inside myself every time I meditate. <laughs> But even more than that, look, when I had a chance, I, I, I had a, what was supposed to be a sabbatical, but I only got six months. And what I did, I did a six-month retreat where I never saw, honestly, never saw a human being for six months. People bought food, put it in a box. And I knew when they were coming, so I avoided it. Afterwards, I went to the box, got my bowl of food, ate it, put the bowl back again, and it was full up again tomorrow for my next meal. And that's how I lived for six months, never talked to anybody. Now that's introvert, that was the most amazing time of my life. So you find, if you are inside of yourself, get to know yourself, be a friend to yourself, make peace with yourself, and learn how to get on with yourself. Because when you learn how to be a real introvert, not afraid of yourself, but learn how to love yourself and have fun in your own company, then it's so easy to be with other people. As you look upon yourself, that's how you look upon other people. What you really mean as an introvert, I think you're afraid of yourself. If you overcome that fear of yourself, then your fear of others would also be overcome at the same time. Laugh with yourself. So one of the ways to do that, <laughs> the old story. What I had to do, my first meditation teacher, great exercise. He said, when you get up every morning, what do you do? So go toilet. I hope that's what you do. <laughs> you probably do, first thing. 
But anyway, he said, is there a mirror in your toilet? He said, of course there is. He said, either before or after you go to the toilet, look at yourself in the mirror and smile at yourself. I was, a, I was a student, you know, you stay up late at night, sometimes you, know, you took alcohol, have a few beers with your friends. I wasn't born a monk. And <laughs> I said to him, like any young person, or even you, who say, look, I'd be afraid to look at myself in first thing in the morning. Maybe after a cup of coffee or strong tea, then I could look at myself, but I'd be afraid, I'd be scared, what I saw in that mirror. Fair enough, he said, but look at yourself anyway. And if you can't manage a natural smile, he told me. I remember him telling me this, he said, get your two fingers, side of the mouth and push up. <laughs> you know, I had enough, I don't know if it was like, not really faith, but I wanted to try, I was willing to try anything as a young man. Give it a try, see what happens. You, you had this adventurousness as a young man, try it out, see what happens, nothing to lose. So I tried that, I ended up doing that for about two and a half years, never failing one day, one morning. First thing, go in the morning, I look at myself in the mirror, put my fingers up, <laughs> make this stupid face at myself. Every morning I laughed at myself, even before breakfast. I laughed at myself every day, every morning for two and a half years, that's why this is stuck like this now. <laughs> it's so easy to laugh. So it is training, exercise, laughing training. So as an introvert, whoever asks that question, do that for at least two years. Every morning, in a mirror, two fingers out, push up and laugh. And a guarantee to work. Or your money back. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, at the back, in the, in the upper realms. I'd like to ask what your perspective on climate change is. Yeah. And if you see a overall and compassion yep. in an Yeah, well, I think there was a number of religious leaders signed a declaration which was presented to the United Nations recently uh, on the occasion of the signing of the Paris uh, Agreement on Climate Change. I was one of those, my name was on there as well. And it's really important that religious leaders take a moral stand on these issues. But I like to actually to take it even deeper than that, because this is, yeah, it's very important, but symptomatic of the way that our leaders make decisions in our world. So I want to sort of adjust the system. And I'm saying this, and people think it's a joke, but I think this might actually work. Democracy is fine, but I don't think it's fair. And I like to, please excuse me, go actually to corporations, companies. You know, people invest in a company and the amount of money they put in there, that's how many shares they have. This is a simile, a metaphor. And if you have lots of shares in a company, you have more votes. Now how that works in democracy, sir, you are far younger than I am. You have much more shares in life. I am now 64, nearly 65. I don't have many years left in this planet, 
you have many more years than me. Why should I have the same vote as you? When my decision, especially with climate change, I may not have to live to see the consequences of. You will. So I think that we could look upon the democratic system and not lock one person, one vote, but your life expectancy. That's the amount of votes you have. You've got more shares in life, therefore you should have a higher, a heavier weighted vote than I should. And if that happened, it would actually weight the democratic system to younger people instead of all the power with old people, basically. And I think that will be an amazing change and boost to the, to the decision-making of our world. Give more votes, more power, just the weight of choice to people who are going to spend many more years on this planet. Mr. Short and Mr. Turnbull, how old are they? They're the ones, you know, or Trump or Obama, they're the ones who are making the decisions. And when the results of their decisions actually happen, like climate change, they won't be here to see it. You will. Is that fair? So that's one thing I want to do, it's not just climate change, many other world problems will come when we give more power to youth. Just like, you know, some years ago democracy just was for men and women did not have the vote. And people say, ah, oh, it doesn't matter, you know, you know, just men know more or they had all these excuses. And that was obviously seen as unfair. And I think in the future, People are going to look back on this age and think just the same vote for an old man and a young man or a young woman, is that fair? Maybe they'll see it's not fair and it'll be skewed the other way. And I think we get a much better government if we had like the idea of how many shares in life, what's your life expectancy? More life expectancy, more weighted vote. Idea anyway. I like putting up ideas and see if they happen, but same old arguments about what to do about climate change. We need new ideas because the old ideas aren't happening. So just throw these things up and see if they, they actually float. Anyway, that's just an idea. Positive. Being in denial, I think, oh, okay, I see what you're talking about there. It's like being positive. Uh, somebody said to me, uh, asked this question, a similar question, because I was giving a series of talks in Indonesia recently, and the theme was being happy every day. And it said, that is impossible, being happy every day. Sometimes we all wake up in the morning feeling miserable and upset and depressed and disappointed with climate change or whatever. <laughs> How can you be happy every day? And I said, it's true, sometimes you wake up in the morning and you're miserable, but you can be happy being miserable. 
You can be happy being sick. You can be happy feeling tired. So what you're actually doing here is all the different emotions of life, you're accepting them. You're not being in denial of the terrible things which have occurred to you. Same-sex marriage, I've already performed one in, I think it was in Norway. I was actually, yeah, so I've already done my first same-sex marriage. So I'm just waiting, straight in government, so stupid, what's wrong with same-sex marriage? So I'm totally 100% supportive. I just can't wait to actually to do one. She's very fast. She's training to go to Rio. Very good. I think the next one's over there. <laughs> go on. Similar to that question about same-sex marriage. Why should it be the case that people of you know, the same sex should be denied the opportunity for a relationship? You know, uh, a committed relationship, acknowledged by the family and friends and by the country in which they live in. 
so actually we get greater and greater tolerance, acceptance of people as they are. Now some years ago, some crazy people said, if you are gay, it can be cured. We can actually change you back to normal. Now you're receiving some of that same stigmatization, trying to be normal, trying to be the same as everybody else. No, I encourage you to be Mrs. Lyme disease. Be you, care for you, celebrate what you have. And when you celebrate who you are, what you are, then a lot of the pain of a, a chronic disease, a chronic condition like that, is trying to be something else, something you're not. And once you can celebrate, embrace who you are, you know, what this world, this life has given you, you celebrate that, then relationships, once you have a relationship with your Lyme disease, which is beautiful, things start to change. The simile, which is a key story, one of the other key stories which people use in for trauma and, tra trauma and uh, torture, which is your simile, you've been tortured every day by Lyme disease. The story of the monster who went into the Emperor's Palace story. Brilliant story, it's in my, one of my first books. Once there was a palace and the Empress happened to be away that day and a big monster came into the palace. Frightening, terrifying, ugly, scary and all the security officers who were supposed to protect the place. They were so scared they hid under the tables hid behind the pot plants, they should have been stopping this monster but they were too terrified. And allowing the monster to go right inside the palace, right inside the main hall and sit on the Empress's throne. And at that, all the guards came to their senses, get out! That's not your place, that's our Empress's chair, get out! Uh, those few unkind words and gestures the monster grew an inch bigger, more ugly, more terrifying, more smelly. And that made them even more mad and aggressive. They got out swords and clubs, they threatened this monster, but every unkind act, unkind word, or even unkind thought, the monster just grew bigger and uglier, more smelly. And by the time the Empress came back, this monster was huge. No, more gross and Jabba the Hutt in Star Wars, and more ugly and frightening than the aliens in that movie, and smelly. It stank so badly that even the maggots crawling on this monster's skin threw up. <laughs> and the Empress, the reason why she was a boss, because she was the smartest. As soon as she saw this monster sitting in her chair, huge, ugly, frightening, she said, welcome. Welcome, monster. Why have you waited such a long time to drop by for a visit? Has someone got you something to drink yet? What would you like to drink? We can have like a cup of tea, 
We can have peppermint tea, good for your health. Would you like something to eat? We can get you a pizza, because pizzas come in monster size. <laughs> and of those few kind words, sincere kindness, the monster will go an inch smaller, less ugly, less smelly, less offensive, so everybody realised their mistake. So instead of trying to get rid of the monster, they welcomed it. About ten of those security guards went around the monster's feet and gave him a foot massage. Huge feet. Needed that many to give him a foot, foot. Have you ever had a foot massage? Really nice. Oh yeah, over here. Very rare the monster gets a foot massage. <laughs> People were so kind to the monster. Every kind act, deed or thought, the monster shrank a little bit more. And soon the monster was back to the size when he first came in. Never stopped there, they kept on with the kindness until one more act of kindness and the monster was so small it shrank completely away. The Buddha told that story, but I changed it a bit, you know, I did the foot massage and the pizzas and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, we call that an anger-eating monster. Get out of here, you don't belong. And it gets bigger and worse, the more of a problem. Your Lyme disease is probably an anger-eating monster. When you say, get out of here, you've come into my throne room, into my palace. Get out, you don't belong. The problem will get bigger, uglier. This is a challenge to you. It can be done. I know it works. Welcome. Lyme disease. Work within its boundaries. Celebrate and never think that you're a lesser person, a lesser woman. Still have relationships, still have family, still have career. You deserve it, you can have it, but when you fight and try and get rid of that, it gets bigger. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, just to let everyone know that uh, we're going to finish on time at 1.30 and there's yeah. many, many questions here so we won't be able to get through all of them. Okay. Um, this one came in and we have had to do with angry boys and angels. How do we encourage them to meditate? Okay. Tell them not to meditate. <laughs> Look. I got this when I gave a talk in Bangkok to some parents in a top school, international school. One of the parents said, my daughter, I take her to school every morning, she's so negative. In the Bangkok traffic, he said, look at all the cars, look at all the dirt, look at all the pollution, look at all the, the craziness in this city. And I try and give her a positive attitude. Look at the birds, look at the sky, look at the happy people. But she won't take that. I said, of course not. Whatever the mother tells her daughter to do, she'll always do the opposite. So, tomorrow morning, when you go take her to school, tell her, look at the dirty cars, look at the dust, look at the pollution. And that's a way to make her look at the birds and the trees. <laughs> Come on, I know teenagers. So, yeah, kids get angry when they're getting up. That's just kids being kids. 
So tell your kid, wonderful. Thank you, son, for being so angry today. <laughs> you know, that's, that's even a better job than you did yesterday. <laughs> Accept it, embrace it. That's what kids are like. It's like, I always say like, wives, nag, 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 nag. What do you expect? That's what wives do. It's like trying to have a dog which doesn't go woof, woof, and a cat which is going meow, meow. It's like trying to get a husband who, does, who, who never says, I'll do it later, darling. That's just what husband says. <laughs> so, kids, they're going to get angry. Let them get angry. And just love them for being angry. Don't try and change them. And that actually does change them. Care for them, don't cure them. Another hand from the audience. Up the top there. Yeah, you've got to run. I oh, know. Oh, it's a girl gun. She's not running anymore. We've got the security guard running. He's sprinting. <laughs> He'll never catch her, the thief. When I was in Los Angeles, there was a security scare, and I saw this Los Angeles police car. Came screaming to a halt, just like in the movies, and these two cops come out with machine guns. It was actually a terrorist attack at Los Angeles Airport when I was there. And they came running out, and they ran up the stairs, and they got halfway up the stairs to the landing, and they stopped. <laughs> <laughs> they were so fat, the Los Angeles police. Not like in the movie, they couldn't make it to one flight of stairs without stopping. So if I was a terrorist, I'd laugh my head off at the Los Angeles police. <laughs> Anyway, sorry, please. Thank you, Ajahn. Uh, I'm just wondering, I work in a pharmacy where asking how are you is not necessarily the best thing all the time. So I was wondering if you had any practical conversation starters uh, that can keep people in a positive mood. Oh, when you say, where, do, where does it work? In a pharmacy. A pharmacy, yeah, of course. I used to say, we're doing a great deal today on Panadol. <laughs> Would you like double? <laughs> Just be crazy. Because it's true, people who come into a pharmacy are mostly sick people. So just, you know, wear you know, a red nose, a clown's hat or something. Just to cheer them up. You get so many customers coming into your pharmacy. But, you know, okay, that's another thing to say. Just, no, how can I help you today, sir? Uh, no, oh, I'm feeling like this, and say, no, that's normal to feel sick. <laughs> and I thank you, sir, for your sickness. If there wasn't people like you, sir, I would be out of business. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Okay, so you've got an intention of suicide. Look, if you're a Buddhist anyway, you know you can't do that. You kill your body and you get reincarnated again. <laughs> and that really sucks. You're back here again. Oh, crikey. <laughs> so, suicide is good. You've just got to kill the right thing. Don't suicide your body. 
suicide your problem. So you know, it's, a, it's a difficulty there. So killing the body, the body's not the problem. You know, the problem is you know, your life. So see if you can actually suicide the problems. And that's where we got beautiful teachings like the, you know, the spreading in the dog shit, you know, like open the door of your heart to all the trauma you've been through. But one of the best ones is you know, the, the two bad brick story. I'm not going to go in, I haven't got time yet, but when I made my first brick wall, I made two mistakes, two bad bricks. And I, I literally asked Ajahn Jakro, who's my fellow Mike at the time, can we buy some dynamite to blow the wall up? I wanted to suicide the wall, blow it up, because my two mistakes bore the whole wall. And all I needed was this guy to come one day and say, what a beautiful wall that is. And I couldn't believe him. I thought, you're blind. Can't you see the two mistakes? He said, yes, I can see the two crooked bricks. I can also see the 998 good bricks as well. I was blind. When I made a mistake, all I could ever see was my mistakes. I needed someone else to point out to the left or the right, above and below, those two bad bricks were beautiful bricks, perfect bricks. When I saw that, I never wanted to destroy the wall again. Still there. Now, that is suicide. You make a mistake, something terrible happens to you in your life. That's all you see, the two mistakes, three mistakes, 998 mistakes, I don't care. But that's all you see, you want to destroy yourself. All you really need is someone to actually say, what's to the left, the right? You're much bigger than that. There's more to life than that thing you're obsessing about, with what you want to destroy you can't stand it any longer. And the best part of that story was when I told it in a cancer group once, this guy came up and said, I'm a builder, all bricklayers make mistakes, but in the industry, he said, this is a secret, I'm telling everybody what the secret is. In the industry, if your builder on your house makes mistakes, they tell you, the client, they tell you it's a feature and they charge you an extra couple of thousand dollars for it. <laughs> and I think that's actually beautiful. The mistakes in life, instead of destroying the, yourself or destroying the house, blowing yourself up, committing suicide, the builder knows it's a feature. It sets you apart from everybody else. This beautiful, unique tree. Two bad bricks in the wall and trees in the forest are some of the best stories which see things in a different way, you don't need to destroy the tree anymore. You don't need to blow up the wall. You don't need to kill yourself. Okay. Anyone else from the audience? Yes, in the back. Uh, Hand in the back. Or if we can't, I'll just read one more out. Sorry, we've got the volunteers in the back. Okay. Um, so I think this will be the final one. Though we try really hard to be happy, what if the person we're living with, love, partner, parent, etc., is causing us to be sad? Because you love the person so much, you just can't be born in sadness and negativity. How can we be? Wear them down. <laughs> Laugh, be happy, be joyful. It's irresistible after a while. You wear them, they're miserable, and you just smile at them and they complain and you praise them 
and then they just get sort of all sort of negative, and you say, oh, it's wonderful you're negative today. Can you? No, yesterday we were far more negative today. Come on, you can do better than this. <laughs> Whatever it is, you can wear a person down so they can't resist being happy. I've done that before. I, it's a challenge sometimes. You get some really miserable people. They, and when I see them, I thought, wow, this is great. I, this is a challenge. <laughs> and you tell them a joke, they refuse to laugh. You know, they're too superior to laugh. So you tell them another joke. And you can see them just, you know, they, they can't resist it. They try, they try not to laugh. And then another real cracker, and then they just, they give in and they just laugh their head off. That's no, but, so wear them down. And eventually they have to be happy. <laughs>